Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Greetings, Empathy Heroes. This is Known Wells. This is episode 46 of Yumi Empathy. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for being here. I'm happy you're here. I am recording in the main house. <laughs> Not like we have a second house. Uh, usually I've been recording um, at our new place. In the There's a detached room above the garage. But the Wi-Fi has just been really shitty. And it's really quite frustrating to me. I just got done recording uh, an episode with the delightful Sarah Fader. And uh, I had to move down here because... Uh, the call kept dropping, and I'm very frustrated with that. It's kind of difficult to run this podcast when uh, Wi-Fi is spotty, but I am trying to breathe through it. I am attempting to just understand that, you know, sometimes there's not much I can do, and maybe I can't control this situation, and I'm just going to do my best with it. And hopefully you guys are okay with it, with uh, occasional some some audio snafus or a little bit of static or what have you. And if you're not okay with it, hey, also, that's your prerogative and there's nothing I can do <laughs> about that. But I think you're probably okay with it because you're here about the stories and you have sweet open hearts and you're a feely human like me. So thank you for that. I'm already saying thank you for your kindness, pre-kindness. Um... This episode, episode 46, Tony the Therapist is back to explore how we coexist with someone who's struggling. We also talk about communication and vulnerability in relationships and being an active participant in your own life. What does that mean? Well, lots of things. You're just going to have to listen to the episode to find out. It's a good one. Tony's fantastic, as you know. Before we get to the show, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, an experience I had recently <clears throat> uh, that highlights my social anxiety. Last week, uh, I was invited to uh, to go rock climbing, to, to go to a rock climbing gym. And at the gym, there was like a, a Halloween uh, maze thing, and then there's you know, people there uh, drinking beer and stuff. And, and I was invited, uh, and I... My first reaction was to say no you know uh what would that look like you know i was was scared what would that look like uh i'm an introvert i don't do well in large groups of people um uh, you know all, all these things that i i usually go to and i i talked to jessica about it and 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 we i she was nice and and very caring and and sort of um Help me get to a place where I, I, I realize that like I do spend maybe too much time at home, and I don't. I I do in fact need face to face time with humans, and uh, I did go. I made the decision to go, and 
I did some rock climbing, which was a blast. And I went again last night, which was great. Um, that's so much fun and I want to keep doing. And the social interaction that I experienced that one night was fine. Like, it, it was fine. I I don't know what I was expecting, but I guess being around um, my friends Becky Norm, who invited me, um, they're very sweet and caring and they they, you know... I was open with them that I had some anxiety about going. And, and so I think they're, I mean, I know that they're empathetic people that, you know, will give me that safe space and, and, and um, maybe, yeah, just give me that safe space to be anxious and, and, and they were okay with it. I don't know. Ultimately, I was okay though. But I wonder if you can relate to this experience <clears throat> where, you want to be <clears throat> you want to be involved in things you want to say yes more to experiences because after all life is fleeting life is short uh we're not here that long and i need to say yes more i want to say yes more cuz i want to experience i want to grok the fullness as people say some people say maybe old people um but I want to experience things. I want to say yes to things because experiencing things allows me to get out of my head. It allows me to <clears throat> find new perspectives, allows me to, as my friend Andrew says, bump into things and maybe look at something from a different perspective, uh, meet someone who maybe changed my mind about a, th- a thing or meet someone who allows me to <clears throat> find a little insight to my own person or what have you, or just make a beautiful connection with another human being. <clears throat> and saying yes allows, gives me that. Saying no, um, going to an anxious place or, or allowing my anxiety to, <clears throat> to, to, to rule me um, doesn't give me that experience. I'm robbed of that experience. And I'm not, you know... This, I mean, I'm not saying like anxiety is a part of me and I, I, I accept that and I'm not, you know, looking down on it. It's, it's not, you know, it is what it is. It's a thing. It's not negative. It's just a thing that sometimes gets in the way and it's frustrating and it can be overwhelming at times. But I don't know. Maybe this is just a lesson to me for, for saying like, hey, no, and you, you, you said yes, and you had an experience, and it was a fruitful one, and maybe next time you could say yes again. And if you don't, that's okay. There will be other opportunities, but to maybe hang on a little bit to that idea that that those experiences can be fruitful, and they can be learning experiences, and they can be beautiful. So that's just a thing for me. That's an experience I had, and maybe maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can glean a little bit from that. And if you can relate to that, let me know. Um, I'd love to hear your experiences with that, and I'd love to hear your story. Okay, let's let's get into this episode, episode forty six, um, with Tony the therapist. Um, and please, oh, sorry, another P.S. Please, please, please leave you me empathy a review and rating in Apple Podcasts or Google. Um, it allows the show to be seen by more people. And uh, I want that. I want more empathy in the world, and therefore more people listening to You Me Empathy 
So please go leave a review if you haven't. You can also support the show financially for uh, as much for as little as twenty five cents an episode. That's a, a dollar a month uh, on an ongoing basis at patreon.com slash Yumi Empathy. And please uh, give us a follow on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook uh, at Yumi Empathy on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook.com slash Yumi Empathy. Uh, okay. I love you. Thanks for listening. This is episode 46 on how to be an active participant in your own life with Tony the Therapist. Yumi Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our neuroses, our mental illnesses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, and for being human. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, it's Tony time. Tony time. Tony, 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 Tony time. Uh, Tony is here. Hello, Tony. Hello. How are you, Known? I'm doing all right. Scooby's doing his tippity-tappity yes, in the background. That's all right. It's, uh, it's, your... it's the joy of this... New space, this I, new podcasting studio. I'm loving it. Thank you, thank you, sir. Um, so we have a special guest on a Tony time, actually. We do. Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Hi, how's it going? Let's get that mic in the middle there. Better now? Yeah, that's good. Right, that's good. Cool. So uh, Daniel's sitting in here because we're going to be recording uh, his episode uh, right after this. And uh, he tagged along with Tony because uh, that's what happens. They're a duo. Yeah, it's uh, Dan and Tony time today. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Dan and Tony time. <laughs> they actually have a uh, easy listening uh, album that is for sale, right? Uh, where can you get that? I think you can only get that at the Vegas show. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that'll be premiering <laughs> yeah, in a couple special, weeks. Yeah, yeah that, that's special. Uh, excellent, you can excellent. You tickets right now, yeah. but they're going to sell out immediately. Yeah. Okay. So at, the, at the famous Sands Hotel. Oh, I love that. I love that. So, uh, today's episode, we are, uh, Tony and I and, and, and Daniel are going to talk about a number of things. It's uh, another one of those catch-up Yumi Empathy episodes where we talk about uh, a variety of things. And on this episode, we're going to talk about some caring for yourself while caring for others. We're going to talk about uh, obs- uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, near-death experiences, compassion and uh probably just some catch up so first before we get into that you have a little spiel you need to do uh for the lawyers and whatnot for, for those all the, the suits the man the whatever you want to call it this is true so 
Well, hello, listeners. It's been a while. Hi there. <laughs> I'm going to... Are we... You know, this is better. Right. I, you're going to just have to do that. We're, I'm we're, sorry. Just we're testing... Pass, yes, we're testing new back and audio equipment here. Um, but hey, everybody. I am Anthony Romeike, as I am known by the Board of Behavioral Sciences here in beautiful California. And I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, LMFT 47805, license number. And uh, I have a private practice in Newport Beach, California. Beautiful. Right now, I'm in beautiful... Does, do the listeners know where you live? Yeah, Tribuco Canyon. Tri- Tribuco Canyon, California. Yeah. yeah. In a beautiful new studio. And uh, I'm loving this. This is our first time recording in the new studio. Or That's right. mine. Yeah. You've been recording. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad to have you here. That's, I'm Welcome. So, so happy to be here. Yeah. Well, uh, let's, let's get into it, uh, Tony. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, so, if you go back a few episodes, listeners, I uh, had Janet Fouts on the episode. Uh, we talked about caring for yourself while caring for others. She, in particular, went through a, an experience uh, where her partner, you know, had cancer and she had to kind of like deal with that uh, emotionally and uh, mentally and it was hard. Yeah. First question to you, yeah. Tony, of the famous Tony time, what... What is, can you, can, from a uh, thera- therapy perspective, from a Therapizing. psychological perspective, what uh, what is your experience with that sort of thing? That's probably everything. That's, that's a sort of general question. But. Sure. Well, you know, listening to, the, to Janet's experience and story, um, you know, first of all, you know, probably from my experience, listeners' experience, I'm sure, I mean, just um, so much empathy, I mean, you know, which... I think in hearing her story and hearing, you know, the, the process that that entails, you know, when a partner, um, you know, is dealing with, you know, in this case, obviously it was, it was a very serious medical, medical condition, but whether it's that, you know, whether it's a form of, uh, we're dealing with a family member with severe mental illness, whether we're dealing with, uh, maybe it's a substance abuse addiction, but the, you know, the thought that I really had was just that empathy. I think that goes out to people when, your experience of something is so powerless and you know and and i think you know janet obviously went on quite a quite a journey with her partner in really understanding how are they going to handle this right how are they going to manage this this diagnosis and treatment and um how are we going to integrate this into our lives right and Mm. continue to make this a part of our journey and, uh, and, you know, I think Janet had mentioned something to the effect of, and just, you know, doing the best we can, right? I mean, just being the best, doing the best that we can is as this exists in our lives. So, for me, it really brought up the idea of, you know, bad things happen and will happen. And, mm. and you know, what is it about, you know, obviously, she's done so much amazing work in the area of mindfulness, you know, and understanding, I think, ultimately, which is how do we coexist with something like this? Yeah. Again, that makes us feel so powerless and hopeless. And, um, and I think you know, obviously brings up all kinds of different relational dynamics between partners, um, stress and, and hurt and disappointment and pain. And so, I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's a lot there, right? I mean, that people have to deal with. Two, two things in particular that, that strike me, um, you know, when I uh, listen to what you're saying is one, the importance of communication. Oh, absolutely. Uh, especially when, you know, it's such a, uh, natural i think reaction to want to to hide stuff right? sure because it's it's vulnerable it's hard it's it's especially hard to to come to the realization that 
you know, you have a cancer or you have a sickness right. or, or, or something like that. Uh, but all the more reason to, in those situations, just continue as a couple, yeah. uh, as a partnership, as a relationship, anything, like have a strong foundation in communication. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I mean, you're going to be really pushed to your threshold, I'm sure, you know, as, as they experienced with, you know, again, all the different types of emotions that something like this is going to bring up. So, that capacity to communicate that with each other, you know, I think is going to be so important because there's, I would imagine, a considerable amount of processing that's going to be required in terms of um, sharing our experiences, you know, sharing the emotions, knowing when to ask for help, right? You know, knowing when we need more support or comfort or recognizing um uh, advocating for ourselves, maybe in terms of our needs and, and learning how to advocate, yeah. um, which I think could be tricky if we're dealing with a partner, obviously, who, who has a particular type of a diagnosis, you know, it might be difficult to ask for our needs. I mean, so yeah, I think this is such a complicated, potentially very complex relational dynamic that I think you're right. I think communication is going to be so important and, and good communication, very necessary for sure. Mm-hmm. Shit, I lost my train of thought. Uh, well, as you... Take your time. I was just because I was just thinking yeah, yeah. actually, and maybe maybe you were going to go in this direction. Sure. But my thought was, so what could communication like that look like, right? I mean, so I mean, oh, you know, yeah. so if we're talking about communication, what exactly might be important skills to to do with our partners? And the thought that I had, you know, or or the work that I'll do with couples when we we do communication work is um, learning to listen. Mm, you know, right. I mean, first and foremost, I think learning to listen. You know, I think on the whole, most of us probably aren't very good listeners. Um, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. And, and, and in, in spite of the fact that maybe most of us would consider listening a passive activity, I think it's a very active activity. And we may not be saying anything, which is probably very important that we not and that we learn to actively listen and, you know, really hear without defending or wanting to defend or to let go of any ego let go of ego yeah. and and just try and listen to our partner and what they're going through the emotional experience maybe that they're having or or what maybe is the most difficult is when we have to listen to somebody talk about maybe their perception that we have a very different perception of mm. and again like you said kind of let go of our our expectations or and let the other person's part you know story unfold right and you yeah know, it's not about you it's not about you yeah and to be able to sit in that, again, I think is a learned skill. I don't think that comes easy for any of us. And, and it's something I'm, I'm big on working with my, my couples with and, or individuals, but couples primarily, um, because it's, it's the bedrock of effectiveness if we're going to improve relational functioning. Again, which is marriage and family therapist. I mean, that, that's basically our goal is, is to help people improve their, their marital and relational satisfaction. And so, you know, that's if, if you can communicate and hear your partner and improve active listening and, and hear what they're trying to say, I think I think the rest is is a lot easier. So what are what are some of the initial building blocks that you work on with your patients to get to a place where they can be better active listeners and better communicators in relationships? Yeah, I think one of the, the easiest skills to, to introduce and it's it's very simple. Um, is is a technique called the speaker listener technique, and it is um, oh my goodness, I'm blanking uh, the Baders, I believe, um, and I'm completely blanking right now on their first names, husband and couple, and they've done a lot of work around this speaker listener concept. And but again, it's it's the Baders. Um, 
And the concept behind it is is learning when one individual is the speaker and 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 when the other individual is the listener, and the specifics of that process. You know, meaning there are there are specific things the speaker is going to want to do, and there are specific things that the listener is going to be wanting to do. And for instance, if you're the speaker, one of the things that you want to be speaking from is is the you know from the point of view of I, not you. Mm. You know, so that idea again of you know I feel not heard. When you, you know, quickly come back with, um, you know, X, Y, Z, your defense, uh-huh. I feel, or I, you know, or just simply, I feel sad or I feel unheard or I feel not wanted. I feel, so it's not telling the person, um, you know, Hey, you suck at doing this because that may or may not be true. But for so many reasons, we may have the interpretation that we're not being heard so if I say I feel like I'm not being heard, then that really opens up a potential dialogue for the other person. Now this would be the role of the listener to be able to come back and say, you know, basically what I hear you saying is you don't feel heard when I crack my knuckles when you're talking. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, uh, or I'm I don't make eye contact with you when, when we communicate. Yeah, and that there may be many reasons why that occurs but the fact of the matter is you could say well no that's how i I listen better is if i crack my knuckles you know that's because i'm that's actually how i concentrate Mm. Mm -hmm. that very well may be true but again listening to the other person and having them share that but i don't feel heard i'm not telling you you're not hearing me i just don't feel heard yeah and being able to communicate about that which is so great because i think at that point couples or, or partners who are engaged in this dynamic are no longer looking for what's the actual truth in this situation. It now becomes about subjective truth, right? What's the narrative or the truth uh, for each yeah. person? Because again, the other person may, that might be how they concentrate and listen as they crack their knuckles or don't make eye contact. Maybe that's how they process information. But if you're saying, I don't feel heard that way, then you get to share your story. And, and again, another person hearing your story I think is is a huge part of intimacy and connection and, and closeness. So I like what you said about the objective truth versus subjective truth. It, like we all, I think as humans want to like, I got to find the truth. I got to find this one singular truth. Absolutely. But of course that thing doesn't exist. Right. 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 Um, and I, it always like makes me think of like um, traumatic experiences people have, right? Mm-hmm. I'll go back to this because it's a, it's a well that is rich with um, empathy and mental health for me is the time I, you know, my father threw the kitten off the roof, you know, or the, the balcony or whatever. And me experiencing that like was very real and it happened that way. Uh, it happened a little differently in my sister's mm. perception. But the reality is the way I interpreted that emotionally and the way that impacted me emotionally uh, is very real. And that was the reality. And right. There's, there's, no, there's nothing beyond that, right. right? There's no point in getting into, like, nuances of factual truth or whatever. Uh, the emotional reality is that I was impacted in a negative way, uh, you know, whatever. Right. And, you know, and so often if a couple or two people bring in a dynamic like that, a lot of times, I think as human beings, we come in with the idea that we're going to get to the bottom of this, right? We're going to we're going to find out who was telling the truth. Sure, <laughs> yeah. And and I think a lot of couples and partners and people in relationships function that way, right? I Again, want to find out who's wrong. I want to find out who's wrong. Yeah. Who's, who's to blame here? Everybody's wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Everybody's wrong. 
Yeah. Right. Everybody's uh, wrong and everybody's right. Yeah. Everybody's wrong and everybody's right in relationships. It's like the most simple truth. Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. That was Daniel. That was Daniel. That's like, color commentary over yes. here. <laughs> no, I, no, good color. Yeah. Absolutely right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and I think guiding people to understand that process uh, generally seems to help that communication process and learning to communicate and understanding. Again, I like to preface a lot of the work that I do again in this dynamic by helping, you know, again, couples understand that if, you know, that's not what we'll be doing or, you know, again, we're not looking for a truth, but we're certainly here to understand your partner's truth. Yeah. And we're here to understand the way in which they've interpreted uh, uh, an interaction or they've interpreted a, um, something you've communicated or, or maybe something that you communicate non-verbally and once there is safety, I think, in that process, once the other person, uh, the both partners in the dynamic feel as if they're going to have space to talk about their truth and it'll be heard and validated, which again, I always make the distinction between people. There's a huge difference between condoning something and validating it. Mm. And, and, and you're not condoning something by validating somebody's feelings or experience. Mm-hmm. It's just simply saying, I understand that's how you see it. Like I, I you know, and, and I validate the fact that that's your perception as opposed to feeling as if to do that, to validate, you're actually condoning saying that is the ultimate or, you know, the absolute truth. And again, you know, it's sometimes I think that can trick people up, but it, there's a there's a pretty significant difference with that. How often do you get couples where they try and manipulate that, where they like you told them what they said is the truth, and then they like go home and they throw it in the other person's face, or does that not happen that often? Meaning, like we'll talk about that and and we'll kind of lay out that as is a structural way of communicating, and then they go home and. They, they just go home and like rip back into their partner because you told them that, that like your feelings are true and then they just use that for like weight in an argument that they're going to have. Like, does that happen a lot? Because I feel like that's kind of a hard concept to grasp. For a lot of people. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I imagine it certainly happens. I mean, because I think in working with, with, with partners or couples that, you know, this is a skill that is, you know, continually worked on and refined over time. So, I think a lot of times... Um, you will get, I think mostly, I mean, I'm sure it happens in both, both scenarios, but I was thinking even with individuals, you know, if you're working with an individual and you talk about that person's truth, and of course, the individual that you're working with is in relationship with other people in their lives. And I mean, they might interpret, there's always the room for interpretation of saying, well, he said I was right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, so I mean, I, I think that's a, a common thing that probably happens in therapy, you know, where, where you know, is as individuals, we can be selective um, sometimes, particularly I think early on in treatment about uh, what we're hearing or, or what it is we need to hear in terms of, of a, uh, again, the therapist could very well say something like, wow, so it sounds like, you know, from your perspective or, or your truth has been this and, and maybe they want to make that the absolute truth. I mean, yeah, I, I think the, the better we as humans can, make our ego as small as possible, the ego part of our, ourselves uh, as small as possible and, right. and and not reactionary or not even involved in any decision-making, the better yeah. the connections we can make, the better, you know, we can communicate and listen, all these things. And, yeah, and, and the stuff that you're talking about, Tony, is the foundation stuff to getting to be able to actually like care for ourselves during a process where Janet, for instance, you know, had to care for her, her, her partner who had cancer. Right. 
what what are some other uh, you know sort of maybe like foundational elements or even just tips for caring for ourselves in the process of like caring for others? Well, you know, the first thought is just, and I, I think it's implicit in what you've just said to some degree, but I'll expand anyway, is just the idea of the necessity of it. I mean, just, just how important it is. Right. Because... Like you have to do it. You've got to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, I mean, most of us don't, and, and I'm as guilty as everybody else, knowing something and, and not actively applying it enough in my life. And it's a, a learned process you know again if you know depending on the type of family of environment or i'm sorry family of origin we grew up in you know levels of understanding of self-care vary and if if we grew up in very dysfunctional homes then there's obviously the capacity to be not very aware of of self-care or even necessarily being aware of what is our form of self-care right and you know which makes me think a little bit about what bj was talking about bj Mendelssohn, mm-hmm. and you know in his uh, podcast was even just kind of that idea of coming from a dysfunctional family and recognizing, you know, just, you know, who, who, who am I type of thing, right? How do I take good care of me? Yeah. What does self-help self-care look like? And, but it's, yeah. So it's, you know, I think, I think it's necessary for people to be understand the type of self-care that they need, because I think it, it differs for most of us. And, and there's so many different positive ways uh, to get it. And so, you know, some people might just really need to be out alone running in the hills, you know, as you do, or, you know, some people may get it by having, you know, coffee with a good friend or a trusted friend, a comforting friend, compassionate friend, and, uh, or a mixture of those types of things. Um, But hopefully we're finding it in good ways and not maladaptive or unhealthy ways through, you know, compulsive shopping or, or some form of overly self-medicating i think janet had talked about going through that early yeah early in her she did yeah drinking her yeah. process and, well, and that's very tempting and and i think something most people might find themselves doing but recognizing hopefully soon that that's not helping and and finding you know the correct ways to to find healthy self-care you know when i'm listening to you i'm using your tactic <laughs> uh i'm the thing that comes up in me is is this seems overwhelming so, and by what I mean by that is, we all have our own self-care journeys, right? And we all have our unique ways of self-care. And uh, I think the important point I want to make is that it's always changing and it's always progressing. Like, I'm 30, how old am I? 37. Uh, I've got many, many years of continued sort of learning in this area. And for the listeners, if you are listening to this and you're feeling maybe overwhelmed, like, oh, I don't have a good self-care practice now, or how do I get there? You will get there. You will get there if you just keep practicing on it, building those little building blocks. It's, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Um, It takes time. Like anything, be patient with yourself because it, you know, like, no one has a perfect self-care practice or, you know, it's no. like we're always changing and right. it's always going to change. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think hopefully over time we'll, we'll get better, right? You know, Absolutely, the more we actively yeah. pursue it and the more we refine it, 
uh, but like anything, you know, the, it, there's a learning process that comes with it. And, you know, we may not find a lot of success initial, you know, initially when we start on the path, but over time, as we become more self-aware, we become more self-knowledgeable about the things that identify or that we can identify as really healing, you know, and, you know, and again, to think about just some of the more obvious ones, I think that people will tend to, to use in practice, you know, yoga, uh, mindful based meditation, um, exercise, I think, you know, these are, you know, wonderful, wonderful forms of, of self-care, but they certainly may not be everybody's form of self-care. Uh, but identifying the thing that really helps, you know, I think restore a person, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of feeling recharged, feeling balanced, maybe grounded or centered, feeling um, filled up enough, you know, to, to get back, you know, in life, so to speak, and, and have enough positive energy to give, you know, to, you know, the, the, the work we do or to give to the, the people who we are in relationship with. And just making sure that we're trying our best to stay in balance with that, you know, so we, we also don't find burnout. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Which, you know, we can certainly find burnout quickly if, if we're not doing this in, in, you know, in good balance. Yeah. Uh, let's transition a little bit. You had mentioned BJ uh, Mendelssohn's episode uh, where he talked about his self-care routine and self-help and and, uh, and in particular, you know, an experience where he almost died. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Oh Heart condition. Yeah. Right. And the... Would have died had he not... Right. I mean, nuts. just unbelievable. And and I shouldn't say nuts. That's a, a term I shouldn't use. Um, it's wild. Uh, he had said, you know, and you hear this all the time. You Someone has these near-death experiences, and then they have this new sort of perspective on life. Right. Which, of course, that's going to happen. Like, you, you deal with something that's so, uh, like, I could have died. You deal with that thought, which is, you know, mind-blowing. Right. Uh, and then he's sort of changed his life in a lot of ways and his perspectives. Uh, have Have you have any experience with that in patients who have had near death experiences? Yeah, I, I, honestly, I can't think of any. Um, oh. Well, fuck so, all. Then. So this whole <laughs> this whole segment is for not. Well, god damn it! So you fuck well, this up. What, el- what else do you have? Can we just move on to the next subject. <laughs> no, it's fine. Well, we can talk. That's fine. I I just wanted to uh, mention that because I, I found it. Uh, very moving and a good example of uh, the ebbs and flows of life, the sort of ever-changing aspects of life that, like, we we really have no control over. Yeah. You know? I, no, I mean, I mean, you know, it, it was a phenomenal story, in, you know, in, in hearing BJ share his his story and, and you know, obviously a life-altering experience. Which I think, you know, is not uncommon, you know, um, yeah. in, in all the ways positive, I hope. But, you know, the thing that took me, I think, not by surprise, but just kept me really kind of glued to, to his podcast was, you know, what that life-altering experience did or, you know, life-changing experience did, meaning where he really decided to actively seek treatment for his obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. And, but, and I would say he just really became an active participant in his own life at that point. Oh, yeah, this that's well said. Kind of the way that I heard it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and, and where he may have had more of a passive kind of process before. Right. And again, I don't know BJ. And I mean, I'm just um, hearing the story and listening to it. And I'm just, you know, throwing kind of at it what I heard. But 
but it was just interesting to hear, you know, just what sounded like a, an active participation, you know, once he realized like, wow, you know, I'm alive. I'm still really young. Yeah. I've got a lot of wonderful life ahead of me. And maybe I need to work on some of these things that I've kind of just, you know, not, not, you know, neglected, so to speak, or, or maybe minimized, you know, didn't pay enough attention to it. And maybe it's telling me something or so, yeah, that, you know, for me, I think was something that, that is, that just resonates you know, I think so much. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of being an active participant in your own life. Yeah. I think that's powerful. And I, um, I'm going to... you going to... Use that as a mantra. File that away like somewhere? it's one of my mantras so. now. Yeah, be be an active participant in your own life. And because it's easy. It's easy to not... Yeah. To just kind of go through the motions or not take risks or whatever like you pursue right. your passions whatever it is yeah i think it's it's easy to do that and, well, and not like blame to do that no. like it's it's we all find ourselves in those right. moments but what i think you know probably for most of us i mean this is changing for me as i get older but i think you know real most, old yeah real old i know but you know Grandpa most of us here. thank you daniel <laughs> can we cut him off now is there but um no but i'm mean, just recognizing we don't have all the time in the world, you know, and, and BJ being so young when he had, when he had that, that life crisis, um, you know, I, he didn't necessarily, and again, I don't know this, but, you know, I just wonder for him if that was that wake up to be able to say, oh my goodness, I mean, there's nothing guaranteed. Yeah. You know, I could have died in my sleep, you yeah. know, later this week. So to recognize that, you know, every day really is a gift and that every day, um, might be our last. I mean, we don't know what tomorrow brings regardless of age and really starting to think again, what am I pushing aside that I'm not paying attention to that probably needs to be attended to if I'm going to find life satisfaction and happiness? I mean, if you're young and you think you've got, you know, immortality, so to speak, when you're young, you do when feel you're young, way. you feel like you have your life will last forever. Because you do. So, you do. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, how easy to just push off for another day. Well, I'll deal with that then. I'll yeah. deal with that then. And, you know, I'll deal with that then. But um, when you start waking up and you have like hip pain and back pain, like I do, it's like, God damn it, man. I need to do something. That's a 37, huh? <laughs> yeah. Holy I smokes. Well, I was not, I was not easy on my body. That's true. You haven't been easy on my body. But anyways. It's almost a professional soccer player. <laughs> let's so. let's transit. So, this could be a setup for strike two, but sure. have you had, I mean, I know Should you I don't you down easy? specifically treat OCD, but I know, um, or let me ask you this, have sure. you had any patients who have Yeah, had? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think OCD is a fairly, you know, prevalent um, diagnosable disorder that we have, you know, obviously in our population. It, I can't think of the statistics off the top of my head, but it, it's fairly significant. Yeah. And again, I think the severity of it is is on a spectrum, you know, from from non-clinical to, to clinical uh, in terms of, you know, mild to moderate to severe in terms of its presentation. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's an anxiety-based disorder. And again, I think it's a fairly common disorder. I think traditionally we tend to think of OCD in the in the most you know formal ways that we've presented been presented with it, which is you know excessive hand washing, uh, fear of germs, locking the door, locking the doors, making sure the gas is turned off on the on the stove. You know, I think these are the more traditional forms of obsessive compulsive disorder that that we think of when we think of its presentation. But uh, OCD is a fascinating to me, a very very fascinating disorder in its presentation. 
you know, some people can present more with just the obsessive part, you know, which, you know, the appear, it's considered or called a puro type of experience where it's more based around intrusive, unwanted and thoughts oh, sure. that are highly distressing, which again can take so many different forms. I mean, some are religious based, which, you know, they call scrupulosity. Um, there's, uh, some related to same-sex attraction. You know, some people uh, develop intrusive, obsessive fe- uh, fears and concerns around, you know, what if I'm gay? What if I'm lesbian? Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, there's that, uh, you know, so, or there's the fear, there's harm, OCD, which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. the fear of, could I hurt somebody? Did I hurt somebody? You know, I need to drive around that street corner again because what if I hit somebody and I didn't see that person? Right. So, I better go around and check to see if there's anybody, you know, anybody there that, that was hurt. Um, so that, you know, OCD can really present in many forms and then you can get the compulsive features, which are the generally the behavioral things that we do to, you know, the ultimate goal of which is to try and provide some uh, reduction in anxiety to the obsessive thought. So again, if I do this behavior, if I tap twice on every table that I walk past, then, nothing bad will happen. Yeah. Then it, then it kind of goes to, to reduce the, the cognitive, uh, concern of which unfortunately seems to just be a reinforcing, uh, feedback loop between the behavior and the cognition. And that's why cognitive behavioral therapy is, you know, currently the, the treatment of choice for people who are working with obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, you know, in, in the concept of if, if we can intervene at the thought level that we can, you know, significantly, reduce the actual distressing thoughts around so there's a lot of psychoeducation involved around helping a person identify and separating out what is my disorder you know what is ocd versus what if i killed somebody or or what if i accidentally harmed somebody Mm -hmm. and helping them kind of relabel that to understand no that's my ocd that's not what happened and being able to call it ocd and uh and then you know continue to work on the cognitive parts to, to reduce the behaviors, uh, you know, and not to tap in spite of the fact that everything in your body is telling you to tap and to step on a crack. You won't break your mother's back. Yo, uh, mama's back. Yeah. But I mean, you know, that that's an old one, right? That we yeah. think about was don't step on any cracks. So what do you have any insight into why the, I think I know why, but I'm curious to hear from your perspective, like why the, pattern stuff like why like why do they why do they feel uh or why does one feel like that will help squash some of the anxiety the pattern stuff the checking the locking three times or whatever like what what is it about that what's i yeah i mean i think it's interesting you know in the fact that you know for for people it can present differently behaviorally but then we also have these very common themes of patterns right which i think is is always fascinating but i think if you look at it um and this is probably going to be part of my opinion which is you know i think what it is it's safety checking and so whether it's are, are the doors locked that way nobody can get in right mm-hmm. and nothing could be stolen or is the gas turned off right i mean you know if the gas is on we could die or the house could blow up if um if I don't tap twice on every table, then somebody close to me will die. Yeah. So, you know, there's obviously elements of control. Yeah, you know? that's what I was saying. Yeah. It's like, the I, I have anxiety. So, right. an anxious mind is one that's a bit out of control, right? It's out of control. And, and so, right. the patterns is like, hey, maybe this is a sense of control, a sense of 
uh, routine that I can apply a little bit and maybe right. some of the anxiety will go away. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the idea ultimately, I think, is to calm that part of our brain, the limbic brain, that is is a fire alarm going off, you know, all the time. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like on hyperactive mode. And trying to soothe that part or, or calm that part of the brain by participating in some type of behavioral action is the belief that if I do this, then, then that will, you know, reduce that part of the brain and I'll find, you know, calm, right. Or I'll find reduced anxiety or I'll find peace. And again, unfortunately that doesn't happen. It's an attempt to make that happen, but instead it just reinforces that the thing I fear is real and I need to keep these behaviors going. So you, you develop this very unhealthy feedback loop, um, one of which just continues to reinforce the other. So, but you know, ultimately this is a brain based um, you know, disorder, in spite of the fact that I think family of origin, trauma, um, can certainly have a, a fairly significant impact on the development of yeah. the disorder. So, yeah. And then, uh, you know, obviously there's uh, psychopharmacological interventions related to OCD as well, you know, um, to help reduce the symptoms of, of obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, of which I believe there's been some success. Um, but I think, you know, generally it's paired with some form of cognitive behavioral therapy in its treatment. So... So is it uh, specifically targeting the anxiety, the some of the medication? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's going to be targeting the neurochemicals in the brain that are going to basically help our capacity, I think, to reduce the sense of anxiety that that we feel. Yeah, and and get a more kind of um, less. Scooby is really moving around, huh, bud. So if you're not in the studio with us, we we have. <sighs> Known's beautiful Scooby dog here who he just wants to be a little active today and walk yeah, around, get love from each yeah. one of us. So. He's still, you know, he's still, all of this is new. And so, he's still like a little anxious, I think, He himself. went from being a city dog to a country dog out here now. <laughs> That's so. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, a psychopharmacological intervention mixed with, with a psychotherapeutic intervention can, can, uh, you know, hopefully give people some, some relief from, from the distress of OCD, but, but what a, it, it's a horrible disorder. I mean, I really think it's a very distressing disorder. Mm. So let's, uh, let's start wrapping up here. And, um, this may be, um, another strike, but no, this may be that. another opportunity for, no for Tony to let me down, yes. but, um, <laughs> any... I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any um, anything new in your research, in your study, in your practice uh, that you want to bring to the listeners? That something that's interesting, something that's fascinating you've discovered recently, um, or do you want just want to let us all down? Wow, <laughs> Daniel's willing to go here. Um, let me. Gosh, I mean, what? What have I been really, I mean, I think probably the thing I've been reading the most about and, and enjoying and, and I think it's significantly important. We may put the reader or the listeners to sleep. I, I hope not. But um, I'm reading a couple books right now by Dr. Alan Shore, who's a psychiatrist, clinician, researcher up in uh, actually UCLA. And he's written some just absolutely phenomenal books on understanding the brain. Uh, basically it's, it's, it's affective neuroscience. So hmm. it's, you know, emotion based, you know, what, what's the correlation between emotion in our early childhood development, you know, and our sensory based experiences, body based experiences of which, you know, we, um, 
is so necessary and so impactful for brain development and, and particularly right and left brain function in terms of how we develop as human beings relationally, you know, in term, meaning in terms of how we see ourselves, how we see other people and the, the structural relational dynamics that we extrapolate from those early experiences and the way they produce our relational experiences now as adults. And it's just phenomenal. I mean, it's, you know, his, his work along with Louis Cozzolino has been, uh, it, for me, just so motivating and understanding people, um, attachment, uh, desires for, for connection or, or withdrawal from connection, you know, in the ways in which people either move towards or move away from. And the way in which as therapists, you know, the way in which this type of, of understanding of neuroscience, particularly affect, affective neuroscience, so emotion-based neuroscience, helps us understand, you know, to work with clients and to help them really, you know, it, it gives me so much information in working with what he would consider a right brain to right brain uh, connection, meaning I'm listening to my body, I'm listening to what's coming up inside of me, trying to pay attention when I work with a client, as I'm also trying to remain very attuned to them and their right-brained experiences that are are generally going to be communicated non-verbally, and working, you know, hopefully transformatively, you know, through that process of really, really, really creating a relational dynamic, dynamic that really is transformational. Um, so I'm, I'm geeking out here over all that. Awesome. I think what are the books called? So, uh, he's got a few volumes and, and I'm blanking on, on all three because they're so closely aligned in title, but most of them are affect regulation okay. and the others affect dysregulation or affect. I think both might be affect regulation and dysregulation and one is, and the origin of self and the other two are, uh, affect regulation and the healing of self, I believe, and affect dysregulation and the disorders of the self. Awesome. So, um, and there are hefty reads. Um, so, I think it probably requires some general knowledge of of maybe neuroscience or and and um, neurobiology and physiology but uh, they're phenomenal though so all right well i'll, I'll uh, for the listener's sake i'll make sure you guys have links to those in the show notes if you're at all curious you can check those out and see what tony's been reading yeah they're, they're definitely some deep reads but i highly recommend them so we've got some pretty smart listeners we've got some wonderful smart yeah. listeners so oh. I, I have no doubt yeah in their in their capacities, I'm sure they could teach me quite a few things, and and will. Yeah, that's the that's the great thing about uh, connections. We're right, always learning from. Oh each my other. gosh, it's amazing. So let's uh, let's wrap it up here. Uh, thank you to yeah, Tony. Absolutely. Thank you to uh, the small bit of uh, color commentary from Daniel. Can we hear from Daniel? Yeah. All right, there we okay. go. Here's Daniel. <laughs> and to you listeners, thanks for being here. Uh, make sure to check out. Uh, you me empathy on patreon you can support the show on an ongoing basis or definitely follow the show on instagram and twitter or like as little as 25 cents an episode 25 cents an yep. episode it's a buck a month buck a month uh, so you can go there patreon.com slash you me empathy uh and how about uh, reviews how are you doing on reviews we haven't gotten many recently no. so definitely go review us in apple podcasts itunes it's really easy to do it takes a couple of minutes just pour out your heart to tony and i and uh well thank you Absolutely. so to you listeners i'm here you're here we're here together on this wayward overwhelming awe-inspiring pale blue dot we have each other it's you me empathy